So let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 5. You know, there is no doubt that lockdown is difficult for a whole variety of reasons. Many of you have become homeschoolers for the first time in your life for a start. Many of you, if not all of you, are working from home. Lockdown can be difficult for so many different reasons. But I thank God that in the midst of lockdown, Jesus is not locked down at all. He is with us now. He's in our homes. He's presenced himself among us. I thank the Lord that he is not locked down and neither is his word. As Martin Luther tells us, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. You know, when we gather around his word, when we gather as a congregation, albeit online and gather around his word, the Lord does powerful things. And I believe he wants to do powerful things amongst us this morning. I believe he wants to help us and aid us and encourage us. And so if you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've called this one, The Abounding Joy of Following Jesus. The Abounding Joy of Following Jesus. And we're going to read together from Luke chapter 5. We're going to be spending time in verse 33 to chapter 6, verse 11. We're actually going to read from verse 27 in chapter 5 just to enjoy the context. This is the word of the Lord. After this, he, meaning Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece of the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching a man who was was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. 
But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that your word is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And I pray, Lord, would your word do its work this morning amongst us. Lord, would you fill our hearts this morning afresh with hope and faith and joy for the road ahead for you are with us. You are in us. So, Lord, have your way amongst us this morning by your amazing and abounding grace. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible comes in Psalm 16, verse 11, which reads as follows. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's such a beautiful promise that at the right hand of the Lord are pleasures forevermore. And in his presence, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. One of the things I love about reading about the disciples in the Gospels is the reality that without doubt they were experiencing the joy of being in the presence of God, weren't they? Jesus Christ is himself God incarnate. To see Jesus is to see the Lord. The fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus. And so when the disciples were walking with Jesus, oh my goodness, they are experiencing such profound joy all the time. Kent Hughes in his commentary wonderfully says it this way. He says, Jesus was a person who radiated joy. He was love incarnate and people felt his love. Jesus cared and his disciples knew it. His presence evoked a sense of security and well-being. Jesus was also holy. So to be in the presence of perfect transcendent purity made his followers aware of their sin. But his presence was also a balm to the soul as he forgives sins. Further, Jesus was truth without the slightest deception. And Jesus was power. Lepers were completely cleansed at his word, and stormy seas became calm. Jesus brought genuine release from real guilt and liberation from bondage. As they followed him, his disciples awoke each day with abounding joy, for they found life to be a continual feast in the presence of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? The disciples found life to be a continual feast in the presence of Jesus himself. To walk with Jesus meant that they experienced wonderful and profound joy of being actually with him all the time. And one of the things I so enjoy about the end of the Gospels and then into the book of Acts and the letters is you realize really quickly that even after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, they're still experiencing the joy of being in the presence of Jesus. And the reason for that is because of what Jesus says in John chapter 14. See, in John 14, he starts to explain to his disciples that soon I'm going to have to go. 
Soon I'll be with you no longer. And then he tells them, but let not your hearts be troubled. He understands that they're panicked and they're struggling. Like, how are we going to cope if you're not around us? And he explains to them, listen, though I am going, I will send another just like me, my spirit. And he will be with you and he will be in you through the Holy Spirit. I, Jesus, will still be present with you. It was wonderful, the wonderful discovery of the Gospels and the New Testament. And as you examine the story of the disciples, you realize even after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, they're still experiencing the great joy of walking with him then. Because now he is in them. He's actually in them. And so whenever you see the disciples, whether they're walking with Jesus in the flesh or walking with Jesus in the spirit, they are experiencing wonderful and profound joy in his very presence. We see the same with the Apostle Paul. He himself had never actually walked with Jesus as one of his disciples, but he did walk with Jesus in the spirit. And he tells us that he has considered all things as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Then he tells us to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is to walk with him in the spirit and experience the joy of being in his presence. But to die, that would be gain because then I'd be able to be in his presence in the heavenly realms. He can't decide which would be his preference. My friends, there is great joy in walking with Jesus There is great joy in the presence of God. And one of the things I love then about this text is the reality that without doubt, God wants us all to experience the joy of what it is to walk with Jesus. Because right here in this text, here's what we have. We have a teaching, I believe, that teaches us one thing more than anything else. It teaches us what it actually looks like to follow Jesus And therefore experience this great joy of walking in his presence. That's what we see here. We see up close and personal. What does it actually look like to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior? And therefore experience this joy of what it means to actually walk with him now in the spirit. See, just last week, I thought Brandon preached wonderfully. We saw the calling of Levi. Levi, who would go on to be called Matthew and would indeed write a gospel for us. We see his wonderful calling. And then very quickly, Levi invites everybody he's ever met round to his house to form a banquet, to be with Jesus. That's when the Pharisees start looking in and they start complaining at him, wondering what on earth he's doing. But if you pay attention carefully at that banquet of Levi, there are empty seats and there are empty seats for us to fill them. Jesus wants to teach us something this morning, church. He wants to teach them what it really looks like to follow him and therefore experience the joy of following him just like the disciples did. So what does it look like to follow Jesus and experience this great joy? Well, there's three things that we learn in this text, three things that I think can change our lives. What does it look like to follow Jesus And therefore experience the joy of being in his presence. Well, three things. And here's the first. Number one, what it looks like. Number one is making Jesus the center of our devotions. Making him the very center of our devotions. Look with me then at verse 33. And they, meaning the Pharisees, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often. 
and offer prayers. And so the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So you have to understand here that Jesus has already called Levi. Levi has called the banquet. The Pharisees, who are without doubt the religious Karens of the day, are at the window. They're starting to look in at this banquet. They cannot believe what's going on. And they can't believe what's going on because first and foremost, Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, is associating himself with like sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. What's up with that? That's not becoming of somebody who is holy. That's not becoming of somebody who is a teacher. As a Jesus tells them, you know, I haven't come for the righteous. I've come from the sick. These are my people who I've come to save. But the Pharisees, the religious Karens, they're not interested in just that. They've got more things that they want to question Jesus about. And so they begin to question him saying, listen, um, fasting. Why is it that your disciples never seem to fast? You see, they are now less interested in Jesus's friendship acquaintances. Now they're interested in his religious piety and they have questions about it. See, to understand the controversy over fasting, you have to understand that fasting at this period of history in Judaism was a big deal. Fasting had a rich history, a rich heritage in Judaism. And so by the first century times, fasting was without doubt a highly respected and regarded act of worship to the Lord. Jews then would fast on the Day of Atonement. They'd have set days for fasting, annual days, special days. But along with these really good and appropriate uses of fasting, it was also being abused. And it was being abused by people that were starting to teach that fasting was effectively self-achieved holiness, a works righteousness. And so by fasting, you're impressing God and you're impressing people. And that's what we should really be doing. And even though the prophets speak directly to this and say not to do that, well, some people decide we should do that as a way of self-righteousness before God. And who is leading the line in that? Guess who? The Pharisees. They are the ones that are leading the line in that type of teaching. And so predictably, by the time of Jesus' arrival, the Pharisees had made numerous rules about fasting. For a start, now a good godly Jew would need to fast at least twice a week. And so nationally, they would fast on Mondays, they would fast on Thursdays, it became mandatory. And when you fasted, the whole tone of fasting was all about sorrow and sadness and mourning. They had it down to a fine art. They would actually take ash and they would actually put it around their faces to show how they clearly hadn't eaten for days so that everybody would know they were fasting. And they would stand on the street corners and just basically look very sad for themselves, showing everybody, look how holy I am. I fast before the Lord. It's something I do. Well, you can see why then, with that being their belief, that as these Pharisees look on at this banquet today, they are totally thrown by what they see. I mean, holy people, surely they look forlorn, they look difficult, they look sorrowful because they're mourning. And yet Jesus, whenever we see you walking around with your disciples, we just see them feasting and eating and partying. I don't get it. To be around you is clearly life and that in abundance, but clearly what it should really be is sorrow and mourning, particularly around fasting. And so Jesus wonderfully and rightfully explains to them here, guys, you have got it 
all wrong. When it comes to fasting, the way you're going about it, and the object of your fasting, you are totally and utterly missing the point. Look with me at verse 34, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. See, just to be clear, church, he's not saying to them then that the disciples will never fast. They will. A day will come when they will indeed fast. But what he is helping them see primarily is that time is not now. Why? Well, because the bridegroom is with them. Why would you fast when the bridegroom is actually with them? You know, this is a wonderful and staggering statement. Because in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 62 and Hosea 2, the bridegroom is the Lord. The bridegroom is God himself. The bridegroom is the Messiah to come. And so when Jesus says, why would they they fast now? The bridegroom is with them. It's a massive statement of who he is. But more than that, it is filled with wonderful imagery. You know, to be a part of a Jewish wedding, you wouldn't actually go on honeymoon. Your wedding would simply last for around seven days. There'd be seven days of celebration, of feasting and drinking. You would invite people over all the way through the week just to celebrate with them about how glorious it is that they're getting married. And no one would come to fast on those days. No, they would just come to celebrate. And what Jesus is saying is, why then would my disciples fast when the bridegroom is with them? I am he. I am the one the world has been waiting for. Fasting is not for now. But then he does say a day will come when they will indeed fast. But even in that, if we pay careful attention, he's explaining to them and helping us understand that even then the fasting that they will give themselves to is not what the Pharisees are purporting. It's not about mourning and sorrow and sadness. No, fasting won't be about those things when Christ has ascended. No, fasting will still be about feasting. Fasting will still be about joy. It will still be about feasting, just no longer on food. It will be about feasting on the Lord instead. And my friends, that's what the New Testament teaches us about fasting. Fasting isn't trying to twist God's arm to make him do something for you. It's not about trying to impress those around you. No, fasting is just unhurried time with the Lord, stopping ourselves eating food so instead we can feast on Jesus. And when you study the New Testament, you discover that the disciples did it regularly. They've stopped eating food for a day or longer so that they can instead feast on the Lord, have unhurried time with Jesus to spend time in his presence. The disciples then, they gave themselves to fasting. They gave themselves to feasting on the Lord throughout all the spiritual disciplines. They worshipped him. They prayed to him. They would read his word and spend time with him in his word. Why? Because they wanted to feast themselves on Jesus. And what was the fruit? Joy. The fruit of spending time with Jesus was wonderful and precious joy in his presence. Friends, I want to ask you then, how are you going with feasting on the Lord? How are you going 
In the midst of lockdown, where we have the gift of time, but we also have pressures on us. How are you doing with just seating yourself and feasting on the Lord? Maybe through fasting, maybe through prayer, maybe through the word, maybe through worship. What are you doing right now to binge yourself on Jesus? What are you binging on in this season? My friends, I want to encourage you, if you want to experience the joy of what it is to follow Jesus, if you want to experience the joy of what it is to be in his presence, this is where it begins. It begins with making Jesus the center of our devotions. Daily time with him, not because we have to as some type of duty, but do it because we delight to. Because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The disciples knew this, they understood this, and so it was their practice. My friends, if we are wise, we will follow their example. If we really want to make Jesus the center of our lives, we follow him in such a way that brings joy, then number one, we need to make Jesus the center of our devotions. But That's not all. Number two, the second thing we can do is to make Jesus the center of our salvation. Look with me at verse 36 to 39. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good now like many parables that jesus speaks that we will discover in the remainder of the gospel of luke to start off with they can be a little confusing i mean is this a lesson on sowing here is this a lesson on wine making what exactly is going on here in this text well like all the parables it's ultimately about one thing and it actually makes a whole lot more sense when you realize the one thing in this parable is the relationship between the old covenant, namely the law of Moses, and the new covenant, namely the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the old covenant, by way of background, is the working arrangement that God had with his people, namely Israel. God himself, as we look in the Old Testament, he had chosen Israel, he had grown Israel, he would rescue them, as we see in the wonderful book of Exodus, And he makes them into a mighty nation and indeed gives them a place to live. And he gives them his law, his holy, wonderful law, so that they would know how to worship him and honor him. And so that they would know how their lives are going to go well for them. And as part of that, he promises them that if they follow his law, if they follow his word, it will go well for them. He would bless them. But if they don't do his law, if they don't follow his word, then they who will chastise them. It will be difficult for them. And yet at the same time, knowing that they would fail, knowing that there would be difficulties, he devises a whole sacrificial system, a way for them to be temporarily forgiven of their sins and made right with God. The challenge is because of the nature of sin, they had to do these sacrifices again and again and again and again. But God gives them this provision of a sacrificial system and he also gives them the gift of priests. Men who will stand between God and them as their advocates, as their mediators before him. That's the way the old covenant worked. The Israel would be his people. If they did well, he would bless them. 
If they didn't do well, he would chastise them. But they had the glory of this wonderful sacrificial system. For hundreds and hundreds of years, this is the way it was. This is, if you will, the old wineskin. But in Jeremiah 31... Verses 31 to 34, Jeremiah prophesied some 550 years before the arrival of Jesus. He prophesied to Israel that a new covenant was coming, a greater covenant. This is what he says. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall, be, they shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother. Saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah, then 550 years before the arrival of Jesus, prophesies of a new covenant to come, a better covenant, a covenant that will be ushered in through a new king. A new covenant that will make it possible for sins to be forgiven and remembered no more. For people to know the Lord directly, not just know of him, but to know him and have a relationship with him. And a new covenant where through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Lord just wouldn't be written on paper. It would be written on our hearts, causing us to want to live for him and want to desire to follow the Lord. And what Jesus is saying here through this wonderful gift of a parable is that that time is now. The new covenant that was promised years ago, the time for it to be ushered in is now. The new king that it talked about in the Old Testament, I am he, and the new covenant time has begun. See, this new covenant then was truly incredible. It made it possible for your sins to be forgiven, for you to be made right with God, for you to have a relationship with God, for you to know that heaven is your home, for you to know that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And Jesus is saying that time of the new covenant is now. And he explains this through this incredible parable. Now, to help us understand, we have to understand the old to new covenant. But look then at the parable again. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. Why is that? Well, because quite frankly, you know, if you have an old garment, it shrinks over time when you wash it. If you put a new patch on it that's still stretchy, well, that will start to shrink. But the original one won't shrink with it because that's already shrunk as much as it's going to shrink. And so all that will happen is it will tear and break off. And what Jesus is saying is that old garment is Judaism. It's the old covenant. It's the old way of doing things. And I haven't come then just to stick a new patch over it. No, that isn't going to work. It'll just tear. And then he explains them, well, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. You know, they probably would have been giggling amongst themselves at this point, because although not many of us are winemakers, as far as I'm aware, many of them would have been. Making wine would be like a really normal thing to do as a Jew. And everybody would know then you, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. 
See, a wineskin would often be like a goatskin or something like that, a goatskin that they would carefully prepare, they would tie, and they'd put wine into it. And as the new wine expands, as it ferments, the goatskin would go with it because it would be new. But no one would have put new wine into an old wineskin because as the wine ferments and expands, the old wineskin wouldn't go with it. It would just break and crack and all the wine would be lost. And what Jesus is saying is so it is with the the new covenant that he's been to bring in. It isn't just going to be poured into an old wineskin, the old wineskin of Judaism and old covenant. It won't work. It will just break and spill. No. Now, the only thing to do is to understand that new wine must be put into a new wineskin. And what he is ushering in there and talking about there is the new covenant of the gospel of grace. The reality that now the only way to get saved is through grace alone and in faith alone, to Christ alone. The only way to actually become a Christian and to know the Lord and to be forgiven and to receive the Holy Spirit is through faith. And faith alone is not about becoming a Jew. No, it is about putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that you alone can be saved. You know, the disciples from Peter to Paul absolutely love this. This was the centerpiece of their life. They were in and around the gospel all the time. They were staggered with what this new covenant was, that you could become a Christian and know God through faith alone in Christ alone. This amazed them and became the center of their very lives. You know that from the way the gospels are written. And you know that from the way the letters are written in the New Testament. They loved Jesus and they loved his gospel. It amazed them to the day they died. And the fruit of that? Joy. Amazing joy. Whatever was going on in their lives, and they had difficult lives, but whatever was going on, they always felt an innate form of joy because they're amazed. I'm forgiven and I'm redeemed and I'm adopted and heaven is my home. Why? Well, because Jesus saved me. The joy of the gospel fueled their lives. My friends, and if we are wise, we will do the same thing. As we follow Jesus, we must keep the gospel central in it all. You see, if we don't, there will be all sorts of tendencies and temptations that will come our way. The temptation, for example, of legalism. The temptation to begin to base our relationship with God on our performance before God. As we start to not just trust and be amazed in what Jesus has done for us, we're disappointed because we're not reading our Bible like we should or praying like we should. And we think that God therefore must be disappointed in us and maybe not even accepting us. That's legalism. Failing to understand that the cross alone is enough and starting to add your works to it instead. There's also the tendency to subjectivism. The temptation to base our view of God on our ever-changing feelings towards God. And so if we feel like God is close to us, we assume he must be close to us. And if we feel like he's distant, we assume that must be true as well. We've moved on from the gospel and are just allowing it to go up and down depending on our feelings. And then there's condemnation. The temptation to be more focused on our sin than we are on the grace of God. You know, the fruit of all of those tendencies and temptations is sorrow and mourning and disappointment and despair. 
but the fruit of keeping the gospel central, of understanding Christ died for my sins. He, he sings over me and delights in me because of the work of Jesus Christ alone. I'm forgiven and redeemed and adopted because of what Christ has done for me. When he declared, it is finished, my salvation was finished, done, period, full stop. When we live in that world like the disciples did, what we will experience is joy. My friends, it's so important that as a church and as individuals, we never move on from the cross, only ever into a more clear understanding of the cross. That's the story of the disciples. The disciples gave themselves to feasting on Jesus, keeping him at the center of their devotions, and they kept him at the very center of their salvations, understanding it's not about me, it's all about him. And the fruit of that was joy in their lives. Wonderful joy that the Lord wants us to have too. And then number three, the third part of the story that we learn here as to how it is that we can follow Jesus and therefore enjoy the joy of his presence. The third thing we need to do is this. Number three, we need to make Jesus the center of our listening. Jesus. Just Jesus. The very center of our listening. Look within at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6. It says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They have to understand that what the, what the Pharisees are quoting in this moment is not actually the Torah, namely God's law. It is instead they're quoting the Mishnah or an oral law. You see, by the time of Jesus, the Jewish leaders of the day over many years had put together an oral law, oral tradition or Mishnah as it became known. And this Mishnah had in it literally hundreds and hundreds of extra biblical laws. And so if you take the Sabbath, for example, that's just one law. Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 9. You know, it's very clear what God says to us about the Sabbath. But in the Mishnah, they've added 39 other laws to that. So we have God's law and then we have this Mishnah. All these different laws that they have decided, man-made laws, extra biblical laws, that they've decided everybody needs to keep. Because this is the way God has made it to be. God didn't actually say it, they said it. But they start to hold everybody else to these standards. And as I said before, the Pharisees are the religious Karens of the day. They are everywhere. They're like the religious police. They love following people around to work out, are you doing the right thing? You know, that's what they are doing all the time. It's so bizarre that even now Jesus is walking through a field and yet there they are following him. Why? They're probably hiding behind bushes because they want to see, what are you going to do wrong now? We want to help you see this is wrong. And so right here now, they are starting to quote to them some of the Mishnah and saying, hey, whoa, it isn't right that you guys are like picking grain and eating it. That's, that's not the right thing. You shouldn't be doing this. What Jesus wants to help them see, what you are saying is stupid. It is ridiculous. It is stupid. It is extra biblical. All these things are doing is robbing people of the joy of what God's word is designed to bring them. And to help them see how stupid it is, he actually seeks to teach them, ironically, from the Bible. 
the Bible that they claim to know incredibly well, he starts to quote to them to help them see how ridiculous and joy-sapping their laws are. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read, I love that line, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Jesus here to help them see the ridiculous nature of what they're saying, quotes to them the Bible. And he points them to 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 1 to 6. And he basically says, have you not read this before, guys? you meant to be students of the law. Have you not, like, read this stuff? See, the incident that Jesus cites here was a time when David, who obviously became a king, was was a desperate and famished refugee. He's running from the wrath of Saul, and both he and his men are literally starving. And so he runs into the tabernacle and asks the priest, priest Abimelech, if he could eat the bread of the presence. They needed to be kept alive and they needed sustenance. And so he asked, can we take the bread for myself and for my mighty men? Well, it's clear in 1 Samuel 21 that the Sabbath day had arrived from what we can tell because the bread of the presence has just been changed. They did that on the Sabbath. They would take out 12 new loaves and put them in and take out the 12 old loaves. But the point was, in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 9, it was clear that the only people that could eat even the old loaves was the priest. Because these were holy loaves. They were holy bread before the Lord. And so it was only ultimately the priest that was allowed to eat it before the Lord. However, Abimelech instinctively and wonderfully understood Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And the truth that God desires mercy over sacrifice. Mercy over ceremonial law. And so Abimelech instinctively understands, I should give you this. I need to keep you alive. It's the caring and merciful thing to do. So he gives them the bread. He eats the bread. His mighty men eat the bread. They run off. They are effectively saved by this incident. Jesus then is looking at these disciples in the field and saying, have you not read this before, guys? There is a ceremonial law at play here. Abimelech officially broke it, but God acknowledged it and applauded it because mercy triumphed over sacrifice. And he's trying to help them see the ridiculous nature of their law. For if Abimelech did that, then why on earth would people not be around to Pick grain as they're walking along in a field and eat it. This is utterly ridiculous. Your laws are insane. And to help him see the authority in which he speaks, he tells them in verse 5, For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I am he. I wrote those Sabbath laws. I know how they're meant to be because I am he. Well, only knows what the Pharisees are now thinking. The Bible does not record it. But it would appear by what happens next, they are not convinced and they are not amused by what Jesus is saying. They're effectively trapped. If they say, oh, you're probably right, I see that now, 1 Samuel, then their whole Judaism structure will begin to fail. But if they don't agree with it, then they're going to look stupid because it's clearly what Samuel is about. They're trapped. 
but it would not appear that they agree. And so on another Sabbath day, Jesus does something to once again help them see the authority in which he speaks. Look with me at verse 6. It says, On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And the man was there was right, whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Oh my goodness, how awful! So that they might find a reason to accuse him. It would appear that Healing might be sinful on the Sabbath. Asking somebody to stretch their hand, that would probably constitute work. That, that shouldn't be done. And so even now, the Karens are trying to trap Jesus. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. Jesus, on this different Sabbath day with the Pharisees still following him all the time, he seeks to show them the authority in which he speaks as the Lord of the Sabbath. And he heals this man before their very eyes. You know, you would assume that surely in this moment the Pharisees would hit their knees and begin to worship him as Lord and Savior, realizing you are he. You are the bridegroom we've been waiting for. You are the Lord of the Sabbath. You are the supreme one in all things. But sadly, they don't. Sadly, even now we read in verse 11, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another that what they might do to Jesus. Literally, even now, they are discussing then how they can have him killed. They've totally missed the point. But my friends, I submit to you, this section of scripture is here to ensure that you and I do not make the same mistake as them. And the mistake that I think is being highlighted here is how the Pharisees consistently gave themselves to adding and taking away from God's holy word. They were constantly adding to it things that they believed to be true and held it as law. And they were taking other things away that they didn't like, that they couldn't understand. And brothers and sisters, if we are going to walk in the presence of God and enjoy the joy of what it is to follow him in his word, we must not do either of those things. We must not add and we must not take away. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we read all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible contains within it all we need for every good work. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 19 verse 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. You know, the way the Bible works is in and of itself, just as it is, it's perfect in every way. And like an oasis in the middle of a desert or a, or a stream in the middle of a hot day, when you jump into it and spend time in it, it has a reviving effect on your soul. It's a profound truth of scripture. It can revive us 
It can bring encouragement where there's a lack of encouragement. It can bring joy where there is sorrow. It can bring direction where there's cluelessness. God's word is alive and incredible in every way. But it simply doesn't work properly when we add to it. And it simply doesn't work properly when we take stuff out of it that we don't like. And in truth, sadly, my friends, just like the Pharisees, it can be very easy for us to do both those things. To add to the scriptures then. Because of certain preferences that we think about, maybe schooling or dating or healthy eating or vaccinations. Even though the Bible doesn't speak directly to any of those things, we decide that it does. This is my personal conviction and it's okay to have personal convictions. The problem comes when, like the Pharisees, we start to discover or start to point to everybody else saying, you must do the same. You must all agree with everything that I think. Even though what we actually think is extra biblical. There can be a tendency and temptation for all of us, I think, at different times, holding others to standards which, quite simply, Jesus doesn't hold us to. And if Jesus is silent on certain issues, how dare we start to purport to know what God wants us to do, all of us universally, with no humility that maybe has us on different paths in different ways at different times. It can be so tempting to add to God's word. It can be so tempting to take stuff out. To come across portions of scripture that we find hard, that maybe challenge our own culture, our own thoughts and likes and dislikes, and so we just take it out. Well, my friends, the word of God will never have the reviving effect that it is designed to do if we start to mess with it. If we start to add to it, or we start to take it away. The disciples kept it and left it exactly like it is and then dived into it and enjoyed it for the glory of God, just as it is. Now, my friends, if we want to experience the joy of the Lord, we must do exactly the same, not adding to it, not taking away, but just spending time in the word of Jesus and enjoying it exactly like it is and allowing it to speak to us as we sit under it for the glory of the Lord. You know, I remember when I was a kid, there was a song that my parents used to sing all the time. I remember them singing it around the house. I remember dad singing it in his van. I would sometimes go out with him. He was a flower wholesaler. And so he would sell flowers to the different florists. And sometimes I'd go out with him when he was doing his deliveries. And I remember there was this song that they would sing around the house and at church. And it was called, To Be In Your Presence by Noel Richards. It says this, to be in your presence, to sit at your feet, when your love surrounds me and makes me complete. This is my desire, O Lord. This is my desire. This is my desire, O Lord. This is my desire. You know, I never forget my parents singing that all the time because they just loved to be in the presence of God. They wanted to be around the Lord. And in so many ways, as I thought about it this week, you know, the heart and battle cry of each of the disciples, I believe, was exactly the same. They loved to be in the presence of Jesus when he was actually with them in the flesh. They loved and longed to be with him. And even after he had risen again and ascended and was with them in the spirit, the same took place. 
They love to feast themselves on Jesus, to be with him in his word, to be with him in prayer, to be with him in worship, to be with him in fasting. They just loved and longed to be in the presence of Jesus. And what was the fruit of their lives? Joy. They were filled with joy because in the presence of God, there is always fullness of joy. My friends, I want to encourage you, then each and every one of you, may we do likewise. Lockdown can be a challenging time for so many reasons. I get that. But to be in the presence of Jesus, there is fullness of joy. That takes time. It takes devotion. It takes effort. It takes purpose. But I submit to you, there is nothing better to do with your time than to go and sit at the feet of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, as we follow Jesus and as we receive the joy that I believe he so desperately wants to give us, let's not just get busy with 101 different things that we're getting distracted with. Let's be people that sit at his feet. And this will be the fruit. Joy. For at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And in his presence there is fullness of joy. So let's go be with him. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for this invite in your word. Lord, I do thank you that your desire for us is to be enjoying your presence. Lord, I thank you that that's even a possibility for us. And yet through your wonderful salvation, we can indeed give our lives to sitting at your feet. Lord, we can spend time with you in the spirit throughout our entire day. Lord, would you help us then to be a people? that are sitting in your presence, that are feasting on you each and every day of our lives. Lord, I thank you for your wonderful and kind invitation. Would we take it up and would all glory go to you as a result? In Jesus' name, amen.